Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors, Jessica Smith, Rachel Kay, Janelise Cannon, Jamie Lang, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Ellie McDonald, Tasmane Weir, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Samantha Detkin, and Rachel Stuckey. And we want to wish a very happy birthday to Jill Harrigan. Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia. In 1962, a 21-year-old woman from the Paris suburbs stepped off a plane in Saigon. Moved by the images she had seen in Paris Match, a French news magazine, she had decided that she was going to try and help put a human face on the war. So she scraped together about $150 and a Leica camera that she did not know how to use and set off to become one of the most celebrated photojournalists of the Vietnam War. Her name was Catherine Lebois, and she was one of the only female photojournalists to cover the Vietnam War. <laughs> and before she arrived in this active war zone, she had never seen a gun fired or taken a photograph. <laughs> wow. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So, was it just on her own dime? She just decided just to go do it? got okay. on a plane, sent herself to the war. As you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing we're going to learn in this episode is, that is how you do, apparently, if you are a woman oh. who wants to cover a war. Wow. Our guest, Elizabeth Becker, author of a new book called You Don't Belong Here that profiles three women war correspondents, did the exact same thing a few years later. Really? Hopped on a plane and sent herself off to Cambodia. Wow. <laughs> if you want to cover a war and you're a woman, the only way you can do it is get yourself there and... Start covering the war. <laughs> and start covering the war. I'm Elizabeth Becker, a journalist and author. I started out in Cambodia during the Vietnam War, 1973, covered those two years. Then I went on to be a reporter in Washington at the Washington Post. I wrote the book When the War Was Over, The History of Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge Revolution. I was a senior foreign editor at National Public Radio in charge of our entire global coverage opened the first bureau in Beijing, in Delhi, and even Tokyo. And then I went to the New York Times. I really was at heart a print person. And that's where I spent the rest of my daily journalism career. So as the 1960s began, 
Catherine was a teenage girl at a Catholic boarding school in Paris. She was clearly an unusual child growing up. She had an amazing um, musical talent. She wanted to be a concert pianist, had spent years training for this. She auditioned for a major important performance and they told her to come back in a year because she was a little too young. And she thought, that's too long. I don't want to wait a whole year. <laughs> so she quit the piano. Wow. Her life is a long series of impatient, one might mm. say, to get in on the action of what she wants to do, and she is not going to wait around. Huh. She's also pretty fearless, especially for a girl who's had a very sheltered middle-class Parisian upbringing, for example. She was bored, so she learned how to become a parachutist on the uh, dare from her boyfriend. Okay. As an 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is this woman is very different from me. Ah. <laughs> Sometimes I identify strongly with our subjects. That is not happening for me here. I am utterly baffled and a little bit horrified by all of these choices. Oh, wow. That's so interesting because I was relating to her already. I mean... Not so much the impatience or impetuous decisions. I take my decisions very carefully. But I did train very intensely in piano until age <laughs> 17 when I suddenly quit and shocked everyone. Yep. <laughs> and then I dreamed of being a photojournalist. So yeah. me, and, me and Katerine, also almost the same name. Yeah. Well, maybe this is the story of if you hadn't been denied your first photography class in college, yeah. maybe what might yeah. have happened. Yeah. In which case, perhaps it's a cautionary tale. I'm not sure. We'll see. Ooh. Okay. But, of course, the ultimate impetuous, impulsive, perhaps slightly foolhardy decision of her life is getting on a plane and heading into an active mm -hmm. war zone. <laughs> To be a photographer, even though you don't know how. <laughs> this is bananas. But it is pretty much how all of the female journalists in Vietnam got there. They all were like that. In that era, women were not allowed to be journalists. If they worked on a newspaper in America or most places... It would be what we call a women's section. Furniture, fashion, family, food. That was it. And Catherine Lois, she had no background in photography or journalism. And she read, you know, the magazine Paris Match and saw the pictures of the war and said, oh, that's what I want to do. She was just, she did not fit any profile. Plus, I should underline, she was barely five feet tall, blonde, blue-eyed. And she had a hard time keeping on 100 pounds. And in fact, until this point, women have never been allowed to be a war correspondent. Up until Vietnam, women were not allowed to cover the combat. But because there is something unique about the Vietnam War, 
President Lyndon Johnson did not want to declare Vietnam a war. And without declaring war, the military did not impose the normal restrictions, which helped the whole press corps in the sense that you did not have to have your copy censored by the U.S. military. You did not have to be what we now call embedded, staying with one unit. You did not have to wear an American military uniform. And instead, you used your credentials, your press card, to travel around and cover as short or as long as you wanted to. And if she's going, she's French, and it was former French colony or still yeah. kind of a French colony at that point? Yeah, so, right, her country has had an imperialist hold on this nation slash area for a long time. Maybe that's part of the reason that she feels she can just get on a plane and go there. Because French oh, people yeah. have been doing that for centuries. Just right. go there. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that's why some historians would get really mad because it's like you're ignoring the main part of the story if you don't right, talk yeah. about that. Like, it's always America and Vietnam. Like, it exists in a vacuum and not in long centuries of history. And a lot of people in Vietnam speak French. She speaks no English, but... That doesn't matter as much when she mm -hmm. knows that a lot of people will speak sure. French. To me, these seem like very, very, very strange choices. <laughs> I see adventure-seeking without much thought of the historical context or <laughs> ramifications. <laughs> Which is why it's often very young yeah. people. Yep. She had a very superficial understanding of the war. She came from a rather traditional right-wing family. Her father believed that the French should have stayed in as the colonial rulers and cried when you heard about Dien Bien Phu. She was jumping in with both feet into something that she has no way of understanding or anticipating. Yeah. The daring she definitely had and underneath this outrageous personality, she had common sense. Yes, it seems outrageous, but we all did it. I did it. I went with nothing. It just, what else were you going to do? It's the most important story in the world. She arrives in Saigon and is ready to be a photojournalist. Okay. And at that stage, there was no other woman taking photographs of the war. She finds out that the one person she has to meet right away was the head of the Associated Press Photography, which was a wonderful German named Horst Foss. And among all of the deeply, deeply misogynistic extremely dismissive, extremely boys club people that she is going to have to deal with. Horst Voss has a very unheard of bizarre policy that he will buy good photographs from anyone, <laughs> even girls. <laughs> He's known for this. If you have a good picture, come sell it to me. When most people would not even talk to a woman who wanted to do this work. So, Katrine is talking to Horst Voss and she says, I want to cover combat. 
Okay. <laughs> he said, well, I think you might be able to do some feature stories in Saigon about women, but that would be it. She said, no, 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 combat. And he says, okay. He hands her three rolls of black and white film and says, if you get anything I can use, I will pay you $15 a picture. Wow. And off she goes to learn how to take pictures in a war zone. Wild. Wow. She is learning on the job, mostly teaching herself, because almost all of the male photographers either ignored or condescended sure. or actively. I mean, like, this is no place for us to teach you how to take right. photos. <laughs> and how presumptuous of you to just arrive and say, I'm going to take the pictures that will change the yeah. war. I mean, it really is. <laughs> it really is. It's an outrageous thing to do. And yet, somehow, <laughs> she will. She has her camera. She doesn't have a lot of money. So she says the best way to learn was to be out in the field all the time. She spent much more time her first year out in the field than any other journalist in Vietnam. So she learned. And she made it up, which is one of the reasons her pictures were so unusual and I think just compelling. Making up her own rules. Yeah. She doesn't know the That's rules. That's what I was wondering if she's one of those outsiders who can have a totally different perspective because they haven't been taught how to do yeah, it. Yeah, no one has taught you this is how you take good pictures. Yeah. These are the kinds of pictures you take. This is what you do and don't feature. Right. And so the images that she's producing are, are totally different and remarkable in several different ways. Pretty soon into her career in Vietnam, she decides that the best photographs are the photographs where you can really see the eyes. As Elizabeth Becker points out, that's a great rule for portrait photography, yeah. for lovely photos in the garden. Yeah. <laughs> this is a war. But she's decided that's what she's going to do. Interesting. So like no landscapes, no big master shots, nothing like that. And no from behind watching them rush in epic mm. action battle scenes. These are intimate, personal pictures. Mm. Now, a huge help for her in this specific goal is that she is tiny. Like, really, really tiny. The pictures of her in this war zone are unsettling. She looks like a teenager. She, she looks like a little girl. Mm. She has blonde pigtails. She is a full foot shorter than everyone around mm. her. She's wearing military gear and covered in camera equipment that's sometimes twice her own weight. But she has this charming little headscarf. It's disturbing because she is cute. Because she's so small and extremely skilled at climbing, at squeezing into tight spaces, hiding in areas that nobody else can, no one expects her to be there. 
She's like an acrobat. She's supple. She's she gets very close. She crawls around. She can be on the ground. You know, you see some of the pictures. She almost looks like, as I said, an acrobat or a dancer. And the soldiers truly don't see her. She can get these shots that seem like magic. No one can understand how she's doing it. She is right in the faces of these soldiers in active combat. She's photographing Marines from a few feet away who don't know she's there. Hmm. And she's getting incredibly personal and sometimes incredibly dangerous moments on camera. (laughs) How did she not die? Oh, it's she must have been charmed because some of these pictures you look at and you just think, what is she doing? She's there. She's three feet away. One series of photographs, what's called the Battle of the Hills near the DMZ. She managed to photograph a, a medic, Vernon Wiki, about 22 years old, Marine who was trying to save the life of his colleague who had been badly wounded. And she caught him trying to minister to him and realizing that, in fact, his comrade had died. And so he screamed, picture of him screaming in anguish and then running and saying, I'm going to get you to the Vietnamese who killed him up close on his face, the agony of this loss, and then the fury chasing after the man who shot his friend Mm. to go avenge him. We had never seen images like this from a war before. She had only, I think, one roll of film. And she found an American soldier who was going back to Saigon. She wrote very quickly, telling Horsefoss how to print it. And then it was splashed all over. All over. It was so good. The medic in all of these pictures later saw the pictures, heard this story, and said, I had no idea she was there. Huh. She was invisible. She was hidden feet away. And he did not know that anyone was there. (laughs) She is right in there with these units. She is going with them on missions. She is traveling around with them and she is traveling from unit to unit. She is hopping around the country and the war. One reporter compared having a Euro rail card in traveling around Europe. It was that much, you know, to get on a helicopter, on an APC. Because, you know, we mentioned that the lack of an official war declaration allows women in, but it doesn't just allow women in. It loosens everything. You no longer have to be embedded with a particular unit. You can travel wherever you want and just ask the commander of whatever unit you happen upon if you can hang out with them for a while and take pictures. And the military is no longer censoring photos. These photos are not going through an official military channel. They're just being sent off to AP editors. And 
we're getting the first really unfiltered, uncensored images of war that the U.S. has ever mm. seen. Good. I think this really is a huge part of why the response at home, quote unquote, to the Vietnam War by Americans is so different than all these other wars. We aren't seeing patriotic images only. We're seeing the realities mm -hmm. that haven't gone through official channels. And it was horrifying. But she's not just taking pictures of the horrors of war. She's taking photos of the soldiers while nothing's happening. So she has these amazing photographs of the soldiers sitting against trees, reading the letters that they finally got, a chaplain being helicoptered in and see them praying, see them bored, see them frightened. So she, she, the whole panoply. In all of her best photographs, she just didn't know any better. And that's why they were so brilliant. Hmm. Suddenly, these aren't superheroes in action. These aren't epic war murals. These are human men suffering and sitting around and just being people. She's humanizing this war in a way that has not hmm. been done. Her photographs are getting a lot of attention. She is becoming a major force in the coverage of this war. And of course, as she is rising, all of the men are welcoming her with open arms. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> They're mad. She's not supposed to be there at all. She's mm -hmm. breaking all the rules. And she's just this random, unqualified girl. Yeah who's taking all our glory. Mm -hmm. She didn't realize, none of them realized, where the barriers were. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to bring out this book because, as I said, I was there and we didn't know what they were until we ran right into them. Through the Freedom of Information Act, I got her secret file where her colleagues, who were clearly, one, jealous of her, but also war until then was a man's occupation. Men covered them. So they started a, something like what we would call a petition drive to the U.S. military authority in Saigon asking them to take away her credentials. And if you take away her credentials, she would have to go home. That would be the end of her career. And the reason for doing this were completely outrageous. One, that she was way too competitive and she used vulgar language and she was pushy. And that she also didn't act like a lady. Now I can tell you that's not in any list of why you can't have a press card. Yet, working with the military behind her back, they convinced the military that 
she was an impediment to all of the reporters and they took away her credentials. She's swearing, we can't have that. Revoke her pass, kick her out. Wow. Now, luckily again, Horst Foss on her side, furious. This is ridiculous. Goes in and, and does a little yelling and they point out that all of the English that she knows she learned in Vietnam from the troops. So any word that she's using that they object to, she could only have learned from American troops. And also, she genuinely doesn't know which words are swears. She's just learning language, Mm -hmm. right? But she is a lady, and I think also a French lady, Mm -hmm. and is supposed to be different. That's the most blatant example of her colleagues saying, you don't belong here, which is the title of the book, of course. She had the blunt force of that. Then then the second one was the military. And the the military barrier was the women got credentials because there's no rule against it. Nobody snuck through and they didn't even know that they were getting away with anything until in 1966. General William Westmoreland, who's the head of all of the U.S. military in in South Vietnam, happened to go to review a unit from Hawaii where a woman named Denby Fawcett was a stringer from one of the Hawaiian newspapers. Denby's mother played tennis in Honolulu with the general's wife. You can't make this stuff up. General Westmoreland said, Denby, what are you doing here? And she said, I'm, you know, I'm covering this um, campaign and whatever it was. And he said, really? How long have you been here? And she said, I think about three or four nights. He said, oh, nice to see you. And goes back to Saigon, furious, absolutely fuming. What are these women doing here? Get them out of here. Uh, They have no business being here. uh, And demanding that they reimpose World War II restrictions. And it looked really dicey until the civilian side of the Pentagon said, I don't think you want to do that. And so they work out a compromise, essentially, with these tiny handful of women covering the war. The compromise is they agreed they would not ask for any special favors. And if the commander of whatever unit they were covering decided they didn't like them, that they would come back to Saigon. Really? This was what was happening already. (laughs) None of these women were asking for special favors. Mm -hmm. Of course, they are not refusing to leave when told to leave. Yeah. It was a false compromise on their part. They just went, oh, sure. Yes, of course. We'll agree to these totally brand new rules. (laughs) So it worked to the women's advantage in that they gave up literally nothing. Yeah. But I think it is a good insight into what these high-ranking men thought was happening, how they view women in the war zone. I also think it's pretty shocking evidence of how little General Westmoreland and many of these other high-ranking officers were paying attention to the media coverage of the war and the realities on the ground. Because these women have been there for years. They have been doing this. And these men are totally unaware. They have not noticed that any of this is going on. 
And what's interesting is the women did not tell their story for 30 years. And they didn't because they rightfully were worried that if Washington heard about this, they'd pull it back and they would be prohibited from covering the combat. And that, that sort of also tells you what kind of unspoken restrictions everybody understood. You understood you had to be a fish swimming in all of this. So that's the military, that's colleagues, and then there are the media companies themselves. And because Katrine was a fully 100% a stringer, she's not working for any particular paper or magazine or newspaper, she was able to break through sort of this stone wall against women covering the war. Because Horst Voss will buy pictures from anyone and then they're going out through the AP, she was so good that she couldn't be denied. She truly came out of nowhere. Okay, so she's taking these wildly risky photos and and being incredibly daring. But she's not just being daring in her photos. She is, again, absolutely, to me, incomprehensible risks that she is taking. In 1968, the Tet Offensive has begun. Uh The big push, the North Vietnamese army is pushing south. Everybody knew something was going to happen, but they thought it would just be restricted to Quezon. She really wanted to cover whatever was going on. So she gets on a flight before things lock down. The military said, okay, all the press go over here and we'll, we'll escort you to a safe place to cover it from our lines. And she and a French reporter with Agence France Press sneak away. They had brought civilian clothes with them. They rented a bicycle and just started biking into Way. Wow. They ended up at a French Vietnamese Catholic church. They spend the night. The people in the church were getting very worried as was the priest, because what would happen if it was discovered that that some foreign journalists were seeking refuge in the church? So the priest asked them to leave. They politely left. They got on the bicycle. They bicycle away again. And within minutes... They were captured by North Vietnamese. Mm. I don't know of any other instance where North Vietnamese captured journalists in the South. If you're captured in the South, it was usually the Viet Cong, the NLF. They were captured and taken to the home of a Vietnamese woman married to a French man. Good luck, number one. So this high-ranking commander of the North Vietnamese Army comes to interrogate them. Katrine and her colleague are talking to him. We're French. We're, you know, we're not American. We're French. And I'm just a photographer and we just happen to be here. And hey, uh, you know, maybe if you take these handcuffs off, I could I could take a picture of you. I'd love to take a picture of you and charming them. 
And they agree. And they take off her handcuffs so that she can take a photo of them. And then <gasps> she says, oh, thank you so much. I, I would love to uh, wow. take more photographs. <laughs> so she took these amazing photographs of the North Vietnamese in way during the Tet Offensive. She was not going to let this exclusive just be that she she comes out alive. She had to make it into a thing. She's covering her own kidnapping. Yeah. And then her colleague takes a picture of her with them. Then, just as if they had been invited to tea, they said, oh, well, it's time for us to go. And walks out the door. Wow. And they get away with it. They let them go. Wow. <laughs> wow, brilliant. So they bicycle back to the church and tell them what happened. Wow. The church treated them with like returning heroes. They couldn't believe what they'd done. They gave them food and let them rest. And then Katrine and her colleague crossed the line. Back to the South Vietnamese side. I cannot tell you how hard that is to go across enemy lines. Then she grabs her cameras and immediately goes back to cover from the other side. So she's uh. now covering the Tet Offensive <laughs> yeah. from the North Vietnamese <laughs> and the South Vietnamese side in two days. That's photojournalism. There's no other example of that. None, 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 none. Wow. She is the only journalist in the entire Vietnam War to photograph from an aerial assault. She's a parachutist. She's oh. qualified. And when she hears they are doing the first aerial assault since the Korean War, she says, hey, I want to go. And they let her. Wow. And she was the only journalist qualified. Here she is with the military. They're tall, tall, tall. And she's short, short, short. The parachute itself looks like it's going to drown her. But she jumps into a combat zone and she takes these amazing photographs. She's photographing while she is jumping. Wow. She talked about this jump during an interview on C-SPAN in the 1980s. And she was just so sort of offhand about it. Oh, you did make a combat jump though. Yes, yes. What with, was that like? With the 176, yeah. though, it, it had a, it was just fantastic, yes. Did you take photographs on the... On yes, the I, I took photographs, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I even took photographs, yes. I had long pigtails, and I was, I, had, I was swimming in my size 6 jungle <laughs> boots, and, and I photographed while, yes, I jumped. Okay. I, I, it's so astonishing. I can't understand it. And it really does feel like a level of panache. Mm -hmm. How does she not get smacked in the face or strangled with her own cameras? <laughs> and these photographs are incredible. So she wore, for the rest of the war, she wore those little wings. But she's not getting out of these things unscathed. She has, by the end of the war, shrapnel all over her body. She's seriously harmed. And, and not just physically the mental, emotional toll that this took on her sure. was immense. You know, sometimes when you leave your mark on the world, the world leaves a mark on you. 
Mm-hmm. She was seriously wounded. She had shrapnel in her body all of her life. But because she had been such a good photographer, AP at Horse Foss Insistence paid for her recovery. But she was so weirded out by everything that had happened. She is not the same. Well, who could be? Yeah. She is given a major award and a celebratory banquet in New York when she arrives. She has won one of the most prestigious awards in photojournalism. She is supposed to give a speech. She's the first woman to ever be awarded this award. And when she gets up to speak, takes the opportunity to lambast the AP, accuses them of stealing her negatives, losing her pictures. Whoa. totally alienates everyone. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it's an extremely awkward and wrong moment kind of Mm -hmm. choice. She doesn't know how to fit back in to regular Mm -hmm. society anymore. Mm. Of course, she has PTSD, severe PTSD. And unlike the soldiers coming back, she has no organization backing her, right? The, I mean, famously terrible lack of mental health resources for Vietnam veterans coming back. But she has nothing. She has nobody mm-hmm. to help her get help. She is not affiliated with anything. She was there by herself. And she's on her own again. There's nobody to even understand her experience. Oof. She has no one to talk to. You have to figure out how you're going to respond to the death and the terror and the fear. So she finally leaves and she goes back to Paris. And that's when it hits her really bad. And she, she has trouble crossing the street. She can't talk about the war at dinner parties. And in, in what I feel surreal and hilarious and almost unimaginable. What saves her initially was an assignment from life or look. Her first big photography assignment when she gets back, I'm sure it was meant to be a nice little, here's a nice little story to ease your way back in. She's assigned to please go cover this little music festival that's going to happen in this little Ah. town called Woodstock. No way. (laughs) And she goes from covering the Vietnam War to Woodstock. Wow. I mean, those are famous photos. Ah, well, so you probably haven't actually seen any of her photos of Woodstock. Okay. Because she didn't really actually take many (laughs) once she got there she forgot all about the assignment and as she said later i blew it i put down my camera and i enjoyed myself whoa it seems to have been the release or something that she needed to find her way back to herself Here she is. She's back among Americans. Remember, she just spent two years with Americans. And she found, of course, some Vietnam vets who were anti-war by then, and she hung out with them. 
And she later goes on to create a documentary film with them. It's her first foray into film. Wow. She then worked on a, eventually on a, a documentary of these Vietnam vets um, going to the 1972 Republican convention, including a guy named Ron Kovich, who later writes Born on the Fourth of July. So she's, again, she uses her environment and her situation to try to get something out of it. These are probably the only people who can come close to understanding her. Veterans, other journalists who were there, these are the only people she can talk to. On that same C-SPAN program in the 80s, she described meeting up years later with a fellow journalist from her years in Vietnam. And you can hear, you can hear the emotion in her voice here. We, we just fall in the arms of each other and, and, and cried. And, and it was, it, you know, very, very emotional, very emotional. And it, surprisingly, it was like we had, um, we had left a few days before. I mean, we were so close to each other. And I think we could talk and, and talk about very personal things which uh, we wouldn't have done to anybody. I mean, we could, we could talk, talk and, 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 and unwind. She couldn't explain it. She couldn't make anyone else understand. Being with these people who didn't need her to explain, who didn't want her to soften or translate those experiences, they just knew that was so important for her. She is trying to get work. She is doing some fashion photography. She really likes doing it, but it's not really her forte. She later goes to the Middle East and does an amazing job in Lebanon. And that's where she wins the Robert Capa Award. Again, the very first woman to do that. By the 90s, she's losing her bearing. She becomes even more difficult. She never goes back to live in France. She'll visit, but she never goes back. She ends up in L.A. She mostly likes to drink red wine and smoke cigarettes. Elegant always. She's not able to organize her life. She's not able to function very well. And she doesn't even do a very good job of selling her own photos. Do you think she regretted going? I mean... I- All of us regret stuff we do when we're 21. And especially for her, there was no way back from it. She does this impulsive, huge thing and then lives with it for the rest of her life. Yeah, and and was really severely damaged by it in in every possible way. Um, And yet, I I don't think she did. I think in the late 1990s, she's diagnosed with cancer. And she knows she's dying. She knows she's very ill. And she told a friend, don't feel sorry for me. I've been to the mountain. Hmm. No matter what else happened or what it had cost her, she felt that she had accomplished something incredible, something important. She had Hmm. photographed Vietnam. It was her legacy. It was the important thing. And... Every indication is she would have done it again. 
Hmm. She dies when she was 62 years old, essentially broke, and living off of money she made from a vintage clothes website. Katrine once said, What's missing from my photos is the noise, the horrible illness of the violence of it all. And I know where it went. It went inside of me. Oof. Wow. But although she may have felt isolated, she definitely wasn't isolated. She had friends who loved her devotedly, who were extremely invested in her and in making sure that she was remembered. The only reason I could tell her story was that her friends truly loved her, admired her, and when she died, they created a foundation in her name, collect her photographs, which were spread out all over the place, all the letters to her family. And when I said I wanted to write the book, they opened it up to me. Which says something about Katrine. She was just irresistible in all of her horribleness and wonderfulness and everything. She's, there are few characters like her that I've ever run across. Enormous thanks to Elizabeth Becker. You can find her new book, You Don't Belong Here, along with links, resources, some of Katerine's photos, and more on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. Audio segments used were from Katerine Leroy's C-SPAN 1985 interview with Carrie Collins. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music featured in this episode was provided by Jeff Kuno, Doug Maxwell, Josh Lippy and the Overtimers, Quinzas Moriera, Aaron Kenny, Track Tribe, Veda Dara, and Dana Boulay. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. <laughs>